1: Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Kieran, it's Questions Day, I have a question for you. Why were you not at Glastonbury? The only reason I watched was to to see if you were there, wielding one of those really annoying big flags standing on the Baroness's shoulders, getting in the way while Rick Astley rocked the pyramid stage?
0: Um, well, I would love to have been there, but being the world's most boring man, I was busy teaching bankers on Friday, <laughs> <laughs> so, which is about the, the antithesis of, of Glastonbury. But uh yeah, I, I was pretty gutted, but I—I I, I, on the back of that, having seen Rick Astley's set, I've, I've bought tickets to see the wonderful man at the Royal Albert Hall in a couple of months with the Baroness to make make up for it. It's
1: um, it's a terrible sign in the Middle Ages. You've got Glastonbury's, you've got all these fantastic new young talent emerging and just got really excited by Rick Astley and the Blossoms doing Smith's covers for 45 minutes. You think that's what Glastonbury's all about young middle-class kids paying 300 quid to see Rick Astley do the Smiths. Uh, he's, he's, he's great live, Rick Astley. He's also one of the nicest people you'll meet. Uh, oh,
0: that's fantastic. I'm,
1: I'm really pleased. He's a genuinely nice bloke, loves football, will miss no opportunity to talk to you about football should you blag your way backstage at the Albert Hall. But should, we, should we have some? Um, who, why, why are you teaching bankers on a Friday afternoon, Kieran?
0: <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. But I didn't look very happy to be there. <laughs> I bet
1: I bet as, un, as unhappy as you probably were, the bankers were probably <laughs> even less happy. Um, Tom Metcalf has our first question, uh, Kieran. And it's, um, he's not far from using the phrase sleeping giant, which he's lucky because, as we know, that's an automatic red card. <laughs> on this on this show, any question as the phrase "sleeping giant." Uh, and no Plymouth fans, it's not about you. Um, Tom Metcalf says you often hear that Bristol is too big a city not to have a Premier League team. And my question is, if one of the two teams, hopefully my team Rovers, were to reach the Premier League, how much of an economic him- impact would that have on the city? Presumably, the increase in visitors from away fans, increasing money through the club, would be worth a fair bit to the city wide economy we we have talked about this before Kieran because it's one of the things that we use uh, to defend football when we're not just being romantic and saying well football's brilliant we do say well no it's it's brilliant for the you know the, the economic impact it has on on various cities but is it possible to to quantify that impact Kieran it is indeed because um when brighton were
0: promoted to the premier league in 27 they commissioned a, an economic impact report from one of the local universities Um, And they they estimated the the total uh, gross impact on the surrounding economy was was £200 million in the first season. Now, a lot of that was additional taxes because you've got an expanded workforce, you've got people coming in on higher wages. So that was a a significant contributory factor. But also, if if we take a look at sort of direct benefits in the form of the impact on the hospitality trade, for example, if if you're in the championship and you've got a home match against Middlesbrough, you're not going to get camera crews coming from America uh, or South Korea, for example, if you're playing Spurs, wanting to do a Vox Pop um in terms of what they want to see you do tend to have a greater degree of football tourism as well so therefore the, the, the hospitality trade in the sense of you know, hotels restaurants taxis um and so on they all benefit um so it, it is certainly significant and then sort of there are also the indirect benefits in that yeah you know, we've said this before um the premier league is is an export of information, it's an export of talent um in, in terms of observation from a broadcasting perspective. And it gets your town or city on the map. You know, people have heard of these towns and cities that are in the Premier League. And yeah, whilst we always use this as our benchmark, nobody has heard of Wakefield um in Brazil or Tokyo or Nairobi Um, and it's not because it's it's not a fantastic city it's not that it's an interesting city it's because it doesn't have a football club which has which has made it through the tiers and and it's got to the Premier League
1: there may be rugby league fans Kieran in in Brazil or Nairobi (laughs) okay
0: no I'll (laughs) I'll I'll rephrase that to not many
1: (laughs) Uh, we're talking to the CEO of Ipswich Town Mm. Um, in a a day or so. He's going to be our next big interview. And I know in the research for for that interview, he's talked about the economic impact of promotion. So we'll put this question to him as well. Of course, the trouble is for Tom, as a Bristol Rovers fan, um, you don't know whether it's Rovers fans or City fans that are getting the economic benefit, which is one of the reasons I won't buy chips in Brighton, just in case I'm putting money into the hands of a Brighton fan. It could be, could be a Crystal Palace fan who's running a chip shop. It could be, but I would know because he'd have a big eagle, wouldn't he? He'd, he'd flaunt it. He'd, he'd be, <laughs> he'd be proud of his his undercover status. No, he can't be undercover if he's flaunting it, obviously. But um, <laughs> but what you know? What if what if Rovers were to get into Premier League and, and all these people coming down, staying in a hotel or a B and B owned by a Bristol City fan, it'd be a disaster. But no, it's an interesting one. I'm glad that we could put a figure to that because I I'll I'll use that figure when you say some people are. A local university did some research. You that wouldn't have been you. You were at, no, the, no. Cause I'm, I'm a not local university. You're a Liverpool. Even then, okay. Yeah, I don't. I'm a bit edgy about the idea of somebody else doing football finance research here, and other than you, I, uh, was it peer reviewed by you? Even <laughs> no, it wasn't. Oh, crikey. No. <laughs> well, okay. Well, we'll we'll, we'll take it that they oh. were proper academics in. Though peer review in Brighton is is something slightly <laughs> different, of course. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Thank you. There, you're welcome. <laughs> no, I'm in a good mood considering it's baking hot. Um, this next question, Kieran, unfortunately, I think illustrates um, the length of our waiting list for questions. So I apologise. This is clearly a question that was asked uh, quite some time ago, and it comes from several people. It, it, the main question is from Jack Windcott. but um, producer guy tells us that Mike Toman and Andy Rumble sent similar questions um, I presume he's not said the questions from Andy Rumble because I would have spent five minutes talking about what a brilliant name that is. <laughs> I know Andy. You know Andy Rumble? Yes. Well, yes. <laughs> is it, tell me. It has nominative determinism Crack kicked in there. Does, he look, does Andy Rumble look like he wants to rumble? I mean, no, he doesn't. He's one of the
0: most meek and mild people ah. in the world. But he's been on a few few tours. We we keep threatening to sell, send him to Botswana. Simply, we can say so we can. He can send a photograph back from Rumble in the jungle. But but <laughs> but, but, but now he's a thoroughly nice guy. <laughs>
1: Other jungles are available, uh, of, of course. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, anyway, the question is, I don't know if they're all Brighton fans, is Andy a Brighton fan? Andy is a Brighton fan, yes. Okay, so this question comes from Jack Wincott and Mike Toman. Um, <laughs> uh, after hearing about Brighton's Enoch Mwepu having to retire due to a heart condition, in, heart condition I was wondering whether clubs could recover the players' value and or wages on their insurance.
0: Right. Um, This is complex. I mean, we have spoken to some people from the insurance industry and also people at clubs. Um, I believe the Premier League has sort of a blanket policy in respect of issues like this. But the maximum payout, I think, is capped at around about £2.5 million. So, Given the level of fees and also the level of remuneration of Premier League players, it's it's not really sufficient. So what we do tend to find is that some, but not all, clubs will have private policies. Um, they'll, I think, most of them will have what we refer to as catastrophe insurance. You know, what happens if uh, you know if you've got. Three players in in the same car, and and it's involved in a crash, and, and they all have to, yeah, you know, they lose their careers and so on. Um, but the premiums are very expensive because more players have to retire due to health issues than, than perhaps we acknowledge. Um, and, and what happened to to Enock and Wepu, um last year was, yeah, it's a tragedy. The lad, you know, regardless yeah, regardless of which team he plays for, the player, yeah, he's, 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 he's captain of Zambia. He's twenty four years old. And he was a cracking player as well. He was really coming onto his own. Um, so, if if the uh, clubs do have insurance, then there is the potential for some form of payout. But as you can imagine, the small print is very small um, as far as the insurance industry is concerned. Um, but we can expand this slightly broader um, and take a look at a slightly different issue. What would have happened had a player had to retire when representing? their country and if it's at a fifa competition um if it was at the fifa world cup for example fifa have something called the club protection program um which is designed to cover this and um we haven't got the figures yet for um 2022 because the the final numbers from from last year's world cup haven't come in but as far as the 2018 World Cup was concerned, um, the total payout was £106 million. And that covers qualifying games and uh, the finals itself. So, so FIFA I do have a relationship with clubs because, A, they they give them some compensation for wages, Um, but B, uh, should a player be injured? And if it's not a FIFA-sanctioned competition, then it could fall um, on the shoulders of the individual football association. So if we go back to Michael Owen, when he was playing for Newcastle, he was injured playing for England and he was out for a considerable amount of time and I think the English FA had to pay Newcastle somewhere in the region of 10 million pounds in, in compensation for that for loss of value of player um, and also uh, wages and so on so it it, it is a uh, it is quite a, a a cottage industry and and I I did a presentation for an insurance company a couple of years ago um, and I was quite amazed that the 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 number and the variety of policies mm. that actually um impact upon the football industry and there is certainly quite a quite close relationship because you are talking about extremely high value assets Um, So, therefore, it's an opportunity for the insurance industry because if they're high-value assets, there's there's impact on premiums. um, And clearly, the football clubs need to protect their their position as well.
1: I wonder if you can get an insurance policy and Michael Owen getting injured as a a pundit. And then the (laughs) the insurance investigator will get really suspicious because you're saying on a second, you say he tripped over a long word. (laughs) I, I feel that I've asked this question before, Kieran, to our listeners. Uh, but you may have some insight if not if any of our listeners do work in insurance I would be fascinated to hear whether in a case like Enoch Mwepu the insurance company because obviously they it's their job really they will challenge every claim despite Mm. despite the adverts you hear on TV and radio about automatic payouts I wonder whether the insurance company would go back to the original medical on signing on and go through that to see whether that was done fully and completely and perhaps find a reason there not not to pay out
0: yeah well i I'm, I'm not I would imagine the club would have probably done the same right um, because yeah you know, the club the club's lost out um we, we we'll we'll put it out here yeah, we know we've yeah. got a, a pretty yeah, broad yeah. audience there um and if anybody wants drop us a line uh you know, Kieran at price just uh or, or the usual social media ways we'll we'll uh, definitely pass it
1: on yeah um our next question comes from Alexander never. Uh, he must hate Sunday afternoons when there's a James Bond film on. <laughs> um, uh, Alexander has a question that we, we've we sort of talked about quite a lot recently, but his is more of a sort of historical perspective, I mean, because we, we talked long and hard two pods ago. because Somebody sent in the mm. figures it costs to watch you know, TV. If you had every uh, TV channel on which Premier League football was available, how much it would cost you... Per year. And Alexander never has a question, wondering why there's such a large degree of fragmentation in Premier League broadcasting in the first place. And do you think we will see some sort of consolidation in broadcasting for the Premier League? So I don't think this question is about whether clubs will stream eventually. But Mm. I I mean, to an outsider, I, I, I presume the answer is money, Kieran. But it does seem a bit odd that you have games split across two TV channels and with highlights on a third.
0: Yes, and you'd also imagine that a broadcaster, whether it is Sky or BT Sport or Amazon, um, would want exclusive rights because uh, we've often said that the the Premier League is the most seductive and also the stickiest um, competition in in broadcasting, in terms of what we refer to as churn rate and churn rate is yeah. the the proportion of subscribers who are prepared to give up their subscription for financial reasons or we're not using the service. Premier League is, is the one that we keep coming back to. So it, it certainly is very popular. I think if we've got to look at it from the point of view, from a broadcaster's point of view. Yes, I, I think Sky would like to blow the others out of the water, but. First of all, we have the Competition and Markets Authority, which I think was more commonly known as the Monopolies Commission back in what we refer to as the day. And um, I think they were concerned that they didn't want Sky to have exclusive rights for exactly the reason which which we've just mentioned. It would make it very difficult for other broadcasters to gain a foothold if they were up against a very successful, you know, very, very professional organisation, which also had effectively the crown jewels of, of British sport, so, so therefore, I think the agreement it came to with the Premier League would be that there would be a number of packages. And I think we've presently got, we've got sort of seven packages Mm. or eight, um, which vary between 20 and 40 games each and different time slots. And those are sold by the Premier League to the individual broadcasters, but no one broadcaster is allowed to buy every one of those packages. Um, So this allows somebody to get a foothold. And also, if you think about it from the Premier League's point of view, If Sky becomes the exclusive broadcaster, um, it would actually be quite difficult for a disruptor to come into the market because they don't have the experience Mm. of uh, delivering the product. Um, They they don't have the employees to do the presentation, to do the the freelance work and so on. And therefore, um, it would be um, probably not in the Premier League's interest because, Nobody's going to go and – if you can buy the lot, then you'd have to have a huge amount of money. Yeah. And who's got that amount? You know, Sky um, and BT, p- between them, are presently paying around about $1.5 billion a year or $1.6 billion a year. Um, you know, for, for a broadcaster to come from nowhere and find that amount of money, I think, would be very difficult. You know, Amazon are probably paying somewhere in the region of $20 million a year oh, wow, for their rights. So, yeah, you know, th- they've got a, a really good deal. Um so, so, I think that the Premier League says sees it from the point of view is that if we keep the doors open, if b t sport or Amazon wants to first of all get involved and secondly they like what they see, then there's the opportunity to compete for packages, and competition drives up prices so so that's that's where we are and the the competition and market authority is quite a strong body because. Um, you know, ironically, it's also presently investigating Sky, BT, ITV Sport, and and Premier League productions. And for people not familiar with Premier League productions, quite often if you are overseas and you're watching matches live from the Premier League, it's sort of coming from a central studio. And, and the Premier League has this; it, it keeps it very, very low key. Has its own um sort of broadcast activities, but it only broadcasts to overseas, certain overseas markets. Um, and the Competition and Market Authority is, is investigating those four organisations for potential abuse of monopoly power in the sense of what they pay to freelancers, because the nature of sports broadcasting is it is very freelance orientated. And yet camera crews and other people are involved who uh, help to produce the matches are normally on freelance contracts. But by all accounts, their remuneration hasn't gone up. And the accusation, which is present, un, un, uh, has, has been, is unproven, is that there's collusion between the broadcasters. We've also seen Rangers Football Club um, take a rap in respect of the, the price of shirts and deal with JD Sports. Leicester City are up on similar charges. So football does get uh, a degree of scrutiny, which perhaps we're unaware of, which, uh, but it certainly has an impact upon prices of what we pay for a variety of products.
1: This is only a slight um, deviation or scud, as I explained to you a couple of weeks (laughs) ago, but there's a really interesting article in The Athletic talking about the broadcasting money that English football gets, which has enabled it in the past 10 years to blow every other country out of the water when it comes to buying players, um, which is why it seems like such a degree of hypocrisy that English Mm. football is now moaning about Saudi Arabia doing exactly the same thing. Basically, we've been we've been hoovering up the best players for for ten years, and now somebody else is doing it, and we're not happy.
0: Yes, and I think you're absolutely right. And this this is sort of a historical thing which goes in cycles. You know, you and I are both old enough to remember where the place to be was Italy. You remember yeah, remember yeah, when when Paul Gascoigne yeah. went? Um, and it was also it's also been Spain at times, especially when Real Madrid had the Galacticos yeah. project. And then China. Um, yeah. And then they went to China. The Premier League's certainly been um, very prominent over the course of the last 10 to 15 years. Um, and, and if Saudi Arabia wants to do it, uh, that's fine. And, and I find some of the accusations being levelled at Saudi Arabia just, just a little bit Strange because mm. the majority of players that they're going are going on free transfers and then there's sort of this nudge, nudge, wink, wink, say, oh, there's some sort of collusion with Chelsea and yeah. I think the Premier League is now seeking additional reassurances and so on. But let, let's just take a look at Chelsea. Um, Chelsea are, in. You know, we, we had talk football, but Chelsea are potentially selling Kai Havertz to Arsenal yeah. and they're potentially selling Mason Mount to Manchester United. Now, Arsenal... Are owned by an American investor. Manchester United are owned by American investors, Ooh. and Chelsea are owned by American investors. Now, if those three clubs were owned by Saudi Arabian investors, do you think there might be a little greater degree of scrutiny? Mm-hmm. And is is there just sort of is there just a whiff of xenophobia in, in all of this? Which which I feel uncomfortable with. I'm, I'm not, yeah, I'm not. Defending any human rights issues of any comp of, of any country, um, and people should be held up, uh, you know, for, for scrutiny. But there, there does seem to be why? Aren't, why aren't we getting this same degree? Oh well, you know, well, you know we, we know that all three of those clubs are also involved in the Super League, so they must be matey. Yeah, yeah but but there's none of that, and that's because. There's no evidence to support it. Just as there's no evidence to support this big Saudi conspiracy.
1: Hang on a second. I'm just I'm writing this down. U.S. conspiracy theory? Question mark! Exclamation mark! Kieran says so. <laughs> salary cap, Kieran, at least momentarily, is replacing FFP as something we all think we know about but probably need clarification as much as possible, certainly from my perspective. Mike Potter asks this question about the salary cap. If the Premier League were to introduce one, what effect can you see this having in terms of the overall financial competitive balance of the league? Would the greedy 16s begin pulling away, be in similar positions, or would it really allow the other 14 to be competitive Towards those at the top?
0: Yes, this is an intriguing one, and it's a fascinating question from an economic perspective. If we take a look at those sports in which there is what we refer to as a hard cap, so the likes of the NFL and the NBA and so on in in the US in terms of their franchise sports, um, they have what we refer to as both a cap and a collar. And and it's around about, I think the cap is around about $200 million and the collar is 85% of the cap. And the reason for that is because they are franchises rather than, competitive sports in divisions with the concepts of promotion and relegation. And I'm not I'm not saying it's right or wrong. You know, we have grown up with this. This is part of our culture. I, I talk to my friends in the States and they say, you know, we, we just don't get we don't get promotion and relegation, but we see that it's exciting. Mm. Um if you think about it, if you could have no worry at all about relegation, you just get, you know, half a dozen kids who you see playing a bit of hoops and, and get them to go and put on your jerseys. You pay them peanuts and you pick up your your equal share of the TV money, and you make an absolute fortune. So if you pay below the collar, you effectively get fined. So so this is to keep all of the clubs in a narrow band. That is really good for competitive balance, Hmm. but it won't work in the Premier League. And and part of the reason for that is because we do have promotion and relegation, and how could you go from – Luton Town having a wage bill last year of 11 million. Um, the the median um, wage bill in the Premier League is 136. So yeah, wow. people's, it, people's uh, wages would go up by a factor of 11 or 12 and some of those deals would be forced through. So I think think the issue is, uh, first of all, do we have a hard or a soft cap? And a hard cap is, is where I've just given, you know, you've got a definitive number in terms of the wages being paid. The alternative to that is a soft cap. And that's what we're seeing from the new UEFA rules, where the salary cap is limited as a percentage of revenue. Now, if that's going to come in the Premier League, that's going to reinforce the existing gaps that exist between clubs. Because if you are Manchester City, you've got revenue of 600 million, 70% of 600 million is 420 million. So so that would be their wage cap. And you've got a club such as Palace with revenue of 150 million, 70% of 150, so 105. So can you see that there's no way. If Palace wanted to, Palace new owners came in and they wanted to be more competitive, they couldn't become more competitive because ultimately they're limited by having this this soft wage cap. So a lot depends on um, the, the nature of the cap, where it's set. If you say that the wage cap is a hard cap at 450 million and the highest wage bill is 386, if you set the cap Above the current level of wages, it has no impact. So there is a lot of nuance. There is a lot of uh, there is a lot of graphs and charts to be to be pored over um, before you can get a definitive conclusion as
1: to what the impact of having a cap would be. Uh, uh, I am just writing down Palace new owners conspiracy. Question, <laughs> Um It's been a long time since I did the statistics element of my human resources uh, qualification. Uh, um, which I passed to the amazement of both my uh, lecturers. But median, median is the one right in the middle, wasn't it? That's right. So, right. Th-
0: so if if you have. Um... If you have twenty clubs in the Premier League, then you would say that the median is the the wages between the tenth and the eleventh club, and you'd work out the um, the mean, which is what we normally refer to the average. um, The mean uh, wage in the Premier League is one hundred and eighty million, but the median is one hundred and thirty six. And the reason for that is that the wages in the Premier League are very much
1: skewed towards the bigger clubs, of course. Joan Taylor has asked us a question before, quite recently, in fact, because we discussed what a lovely name Joan was. But Joan, (laughs) I think, has a bee in her bonnet about Mm. uh, a particular issue. As Joan says, in the recent Peterborough fan bond, the owners of the club claimed that the money would be spent on converting terracing into safe standing, a new bar, and preparing documents for a new stadium. Only one of those has been finished, with no sign of the rest happening Could the club spend the fans' money on something else or is it a ring-fenced pot of gold? Well, again, I think this is a legal question
0: more than a finance question. But if the club has a in its uh, presentation documents, in its offer documents to fans – and I must confess I should have checked the small print myself because I do own – I do have an investment in the posh bond – it could be potentially part of breach of contract. So if they said, we're ring-fencing the money for the following three purposes, which I suspect they have done, um, and then that money is seen to be spent on other things, then bondholders potentially could have a claim against the company. Um, Now, as far as this is concerned, it's, it's actually very difficult because if the money goes into a standard bank account, and it's not escrowed and, it, and it's not sort of ring-fenced, then it's difficult to see. You know, if, if, you just put money, if somebody just gives you money and you put it into your backyard and you say, well, I'm going to spend this on going to the gym, you know? and we've seen this with the NHS, you know, trying to persuade people to, to exercise more and so on. If you just give people money and they say, yeah, I'm going to do it, it, it can at times be difficult to match up expenditure um, and then to also prove that actually you, you've spent that money on other projects. You could just be saying, well, I've not spent it yet, um, but I am a bit worried about Peterborough um, oh, because right. um, the reason I'm worried they, they've they've received all of this money. It, it's paying nine percent interest, which which is is a is a good return. There was a there was a fifteen percent bonus if they got promoted to the championship. So as much as I thought that Sheffield Wednesday beating Peterborough in the playoffs was probably my most enjoyable non own club match of the season. Um, part of me was crying. Um, you know the the accountant in me was crying because I'm going that's costing me 15% of yeah x. Um, and uh, but that yeah that, that's the way it goes. Uh, but but the, the the reason why I'm concerned about Peterborough is is twofold. First of all, the the company which owns the stadium, which is separate from the football club, yeah. that's gone into receivership. Yeah. Not good news. Secondly, um, Peterborough are being a bit sneaky, in my view. They they're using a a loophole. They're using a get out clause to avoid publishing their accounts um, for for three months, and. I think as a stakeholder in the club effectively as a lender to the club I think I and other bondholders are entitled to a bit more respect than that because we've given the the club an unsecured loan and therefore we would expect a degree of transparency um coming back and that's not been forthcoming so this is why I'm I'm a bit twitchy um, and, and and there was, there's been a really good article. I think it was in the Athletic recently about this sort of spate of clubs, the likes of QPR and Norwich um and, and Peterborough, and this uh, I think Stevenage might have done something similar, who are using um fans as a means of raising money. And you know, I think I've I've said to myself you know on more than one occasion with regards to these, these are unsecured loans. They come at a risk, and the risk is you could lose a hundred percent of what you put in. Now. Yeah, these are long-standing institutions, but Berry Football Club was a long-standing institution, mm. and we've seen a lot of clubs um, also go into administration. And you're effectively going to you're going to lose if it goes into administration. You're probably going to lose seventy five percent, and you potentially could lose more. So you must always take that into consideration. It's it, it's a risky um, investment, but you know it's also
1: an emotional one. Well, Joan, thank you for the question. I I wasn't expecting it to take such a sinister twist at the end there. And uh, of course, um, as we always say, if anybody from Peterborough uh, is listening, then feel free to get in touch and we'd love to hear things from your point of view. Um, Our next question, Kieran, comes from Chris Dobson. Um, and I imagine you'd have been very happy because I think (laughs) this probably gives you a spreadsheet opportunity, doesn't it? It did indeed, yes. Good. Well done, Chris. Um, (laughs) It's a good question. Chris Dobson says... They're all good questions. We know that, Kieran. We wouldn't be asking them otherwise. Chris Dobson says, with the Arsenal women's team attracting a women's Super League attendance of 47,367, and most other teams seeing a Euros bounce, followed by a world record fee for Kira Walsh from Man City to Barcelona, it got me thinking that of all the top women's teams... Who has the closest financial results to their male compatriots, and who's the furthest away? My guess for the biggest golf, says Chris, between the two would be Barcelona. But what would say PSG, Lyon, Balean, and other WSL clubs? How do they fare?
0: Well, the biggest gap is, in fact, Manchester City. Oh, because wow! Really? Manchester City have the highest revenue of Uh any club in uh, 22, We just had the Deloitte report come out, which has confirmed that. Manchester City women's, we are talking single millions. We're talking, I think, about four to five million. Manchester City, uh, uh, overall, uh, 617 million. So it's it's Manchester City is the biggest, but they are all huge. We're all talking multiple hundreds (laughs) of millions for you know, th- those the types of clubs which we've just mentioned. Um, some of the, the the women's teams, I think, in Germany are a wee bit closer. Um, but Barcelona, which has got a very successful women's team, but Barcelona men's team, we're still talking you know, over half a billion uh, euro at least. So so that there are big divides. Um, the, the one I think which would be the closest, and I appreciate it's not a a named club. Of course, uh, would be our very good friends at Lewis Football Club, where they've got uh, uh, identical yeah. budgets as far as the men and women's team is concerned. Um, but there, I, and I think one of the things which which concerns me is that women's football is constantly being compared to men's football, and, and I don't think there's any benefit in taking that. It's the same sport, but it's not the same industry because the men's sport effectively had 140 years head start yeah um and a chance to establish themselves so um you know for that first of all you know the growth uh in in appeal of uh the women's game is absolutely fantastic um and you know for for those people that don't like it that, that there's nothing wrong with with like it but there's no need to be so vociferous about it I'm, I'm not particularly interested in Formula One what I don't do is every time that there's a race on feel feel the obligation to go onto social media say oh I don't like that <laughs> and uh and, and and go go puce in the face and, and uh, it's uh it, it's a, it's a different sport you know last year going to the Lionesses seeing them winning the final um was one of the highlights of the year, as far as myself and the Baroness were concerned. And it was it, the reason why it was a highlight was not just the sport itself, it was the event. Yeah. Um, and remember, England were in the uh, Euros final, the England men's team. I think it's fair to say it wasn't a joyful experience, no. either on the pitch or
1: off it. That that voice you just did there, Kieran, that's how I imagine Andy Rumble speaks. Uh, uh, just, well, Andy does listen to the show so we'll
0: perhaps get him to send a voice message in That would be very to,
1: interesting to, see, to, to, match to just them
0: up. see the slight difference um,
1: uh, We may have mentioned two pods ago Kieran that there's a, a book coming out on October the 12th uh, called Unfit and Improper Persons in which we create a fictional football club um, We thought it was very important to properly investigate the finances of women's football as well as men which is why mm. we have several chapters where we discuss whether it's economically viable for us to start a women's team, which, of course, we do. But I, I must admit, Kieran, talking to people in the women's game about the finances, I was a bit taken aback that that, that the golf is – so. I mean, I knew it was going to be big, Kieran, but mm. I, I was taken aback by this, this huge size of the golf between men and women's football and the fact that there are – there are women involved in the sport who think it's, that's already irreparable. Um, so again, I think this is something we probably we probably need to do a, a special Kieran on the finances of women's football because yeah, it, it's a very. It seems to me that so many people we spoke to, you know, from uh, high-profile female broadcasters like like uh, Claire Boarding and and Gabby Logan down to people who play football at grassroots. Level like our friend Sophia Axelson uh, Clapton. It seems that women's football is at a balancing point at the moment, Kieran, and it's going to be very interesting to see how it goes.
0: It, it is. And there is a separate panel which is headed by Karen Carney, which yeah. is dealing with the finances on the game. I'm part of that panel. Um, you know, I don't, I don't like to do things for a sneak. So, you know, full transparency. I'm, you know, I've, I've been on a couple of meetings and there have been sort of deep discussions because there is a genuine concern that we could end up with the big six yeah. in or the WSL. It, yeah, yeah. And is the rest of the women's game um, at a point where it can cope with that? Because... You and I, we will support our clubs. Yeah, you know, if we if we lose five or six nil to Liverpool, Manchester United, or yeah, you know, well these clubs, we, we we take it, we accept it. We we know where we are in the pecking order. We, if you've got uh, an industry where you're trying to attract new people to watch it, and the club is regularly getting yeah pretty horrendous results, it's difficult to persuade them to come back. Whereas for us, it's get get a stuffing moan about it for three days with your mates turn up next saturday uh, as if nothing had happened the previous weekend um and and i think that's that's one of the big challenges as far as the women's game is concerned you need you you know it's a classic case of you need a ride a rising tide to to you know uh, float all ships and there's a danger that some of them won't be able to achieve that objective if we become very polarized in terms of results
1: yeah and unfortunately we and we I won't mention names now because it's not in proper context. We do in the book. There are people already who want to ring fence mm. the, the top four or five uh, WSL clubs. It has already become an obsession with a, an English women's team winning uh, trophies in Europe. So uh, I, I, I think it's a fascinating time for women's football. And I, I, it worries me that it could go either way. Up an ultimate question, Kieran, comes from Callum Roper. And Callum says, in the world of football, we're all aware of the use of scouts for finding and assessing on-field talent, with clubs at the top level investing significant sums in their scouting networks. Now, 10 years' time, it'll be AI, Callum. Take my word for it. In fact, I'm going to write that down here. Conspiracy Theory, AI Scouts. As a recruitment consultant in a different sector myself, I wondered, says Callum, if clubs invest any money in the search for off-field talent, such as commercial directors, directors of football or other senior roles, that have an impact for the club beyond the immediate squad and coaching staff. If they do have such an outlay, is that through third-party consultants or agencies or through an internal talent coordinator? Interesting question, Kevin.
0: It is, um, and uh, you're you're ahead of the game here, Kevin, because... If you read today's Telegraph,
1: there's an article all about AI and football. Right, I need to. Uh, in in I need terms to, of, we need to stop you there, because I need to make it clear. No, I did not read today's Telegraph. For, right, for, yeah. for just so people know, I did not read the Telegraph. I, I will occasionally dip in because it's important to see what the enemy are thinking. But I have not read today's Daily Telegraph, Sunday Telegraph. Yes.
0: Yeah, and I've also people thinking, isn't think Kieran was that right wing? Um, I I have I have recently cancelled my subscription to the Telegraph, which I've held for a number of years, because I like to get a broad spectrum of, of views. Quite I I objected to being referred to by the. By by the paper which I buy as a woke blob, so I thought, well, oh, under know. If, if that's what you really think of me, um, I'll, I'll, I'll I'll stop. Thank you. Thank you very much.
1: Not you. They um, didn't call you specifically a woke blob, did they, Kieran? Just all of
0: us. No, but it was pretty. <laughs> you you sort of, if, if you then read the following adjectives, uh, I, I see. I seem to. I seem to tick all of the boxes. Exactly. So yes, I know. It's...
1: I know. I, t- I take the word woke as a badge of honour, Kieran. Don't worry. <laughs> um. Football clubs do use headhunters. You know, let, let's let's
0: call them for what they are. Uh, you know, third-party consultants who, who do a very good job. Um, and there's, uh, and that's because if you are an executive of a company which is generating, you know, especially at, at Premier League level, you know, somewhere between 100 and £600 million pounds a year, you want somebody with a degree of professionalism. Um, at the same time... Um, it's quite an incestuous industry here. You you see the same names going around again and again and again. And that has both positives and negatives. It's positives in that uh, I think football is a unique industry, that the nature of competition um, is different to, let's say, a a computer parts manufacturer, um, where I think – you're looking more at more transferable skills, and, and you know, clearly negotiations with players, negotiations with uh, the, the the representative boards in terms of the Premier League and the EFL and so on. You know, having a knowledge of those can can be of benefit. Um, equally, somebody with new ideas coming in could be beneficial. So perhaps it could be argued that you know, the football industry is at times a wee bit too conservative. Um, but they, so so they use they use a combination, and there is a there is a website which is called. Uh, I think it's called jobs jobs in football yeah um which which shows uh you know, all of the the current jobs yeah you know, I'm, I'm aware of headhunters um yeah you know, again i've been approached about bits and pieces and i i go I'm a, I'm a teacher I, I love teaching i'm not interested in in a career in in the football industry and also it would shut me up and, uh, <laughs> yeah having, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah that's you know, a good point yeah being being what we refer to uh, back in uh, you know the the land of the the land of the bogs and the little people as a gobshite, <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't want that particular restriction. So um, there is there is there is both uh, yeah there, there's an old boys network which certainly exists, and there are also headhunters where um, if you take for example one of the recent Liverpool chief executives, he was recruited from EA Sports. Um, right. and, and okay. company was brought in. But I was aware of on their short list that they had people from within the football industry as well.
1: Okay. <clears throat> Our final question, Kieran, comes from David Mourne. And it's one of those questions I love because at first glance, you think this is a classic four blokes and a, two women round a pub table <laughs> coming up with explanations for something that's probably very simple. But on second glance you think there may be something in this. And, and David says... In October last season, I was watching a game, and none of the players had long sleeve shirts on mm. That got me thinking and When I looked at some other games over the same weekend, all the players seemed to have short sleeve shirts. Is this a manufacturing decision to save money making them which i I genuinely laughed out loud first of all, but then I thought, hang on a second, surely it'd be the other way around surely the the, the clubs would have long sleeve shirts so they could get more. Uh, sleeve sponsors on but and of course arsenal fans will tell you that traditionally i don't know if it's still the case that the the captain decides whether or not the team wears short sleeves or long sleeves and everyone wears the same kit but this this (laughs) this question genuinely went from uh, laughing out loud to going on one of my palace whatsapp groups going what do you reckon
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah um this is a fascinating one because I remember it wasn't that long ago when you were given a long sleeved option yeah. when you were buying. Sure, yeah. uh, oh, yeah. And I think w- what has happened is that in order to have more efficiencies from a production point of view, the manufacturers found that you know, 98% of shirts that were purchased were, shirt sleeve- were short sleeves. So therefore, why, why go to the bother of just having a small production run of long, sh- long sleeve shirts when we can we can go for the short sleeve option. Um, all products, um, all manufactured products, consist of three uh, three components, which is materials, labor, and uh, overhead. And clearly, the materials element uh, would uh, would be higher in a long sleeve, but but not very much. I mean, if you, yeah, we, we we've seen some of the launch prices for kits this summer, which which are just pretty obscene. Yeah, um, and. The difference between the the kit and the uh, the pitch authentic, where you're paying an extra forty five quid, there's not another forty five quid's worth of uh, material in it. You're you're just you're just being mugged off. Uh, but you know if if, if people want that degree of authenticity then then it's fine and yeah that's that's why we didn't go for a a pub table authentic version (laughs) of the price of football kit (laughs) there was just just the one available um so as far as long as as long sleeve shirts are concerned if a player really wanted one then that would be arranged because Producing the kits for individual players is is a, is a separate issue. If if we're talking about the senior clubs, but what we tend to do is see, see these days is remember players are using uh, they, they they're using vests, um, and they often will use a long sleeve vest um, in the same color as yeah. the football shirt if they want to use a long sleeved uh, product. So so that's the way that clubs will will approach it these days. There's simply not the demand in the consumer market. And when it comes to the players, again, it's sort of it's one of these things which becomes quite cultural. You know, so many players these days have got ink on their arms, which they which they like to display. Again, you know, that's that's a, that's another issue. Uh, you know, people, yeah, you know, the players like to uh, display their their, their ink based physique.
1: So the, the trouble is with the the short sleeve shirt in winter is it plays into the hands of all those people. There's one in every pub who will look up at a screen and see a continental player. And he'll go look at him wearing gloves. Uh, and because he's got short sleeves, so it makes the gloves yeah. stand out a little bit. I have um, uh, a 1976 replica FA Cup Palace shirt, the one with the band, and it's in the original material. Oh, wow. I, I couldn't wear it on the coldest day of the year. You'd sweat on the cold. It's just, <laughs> you might as well have a Parker on and a fur coat over the how How they played football in that is beyond me. I'm still convinced if we had a lighter shirt, we might have beaten Southampton in the semi finals just the heaviest. If it rains, you, there's no point. You, you could go to Glastonbury and camp in it. It's just, anyway, Anyway, thank you to everyone who's donated to the pod recently via our Patreon page. It's very kind of you, and they include Will Corden, Chris Getty, Richard O'Brien, Jonathan Tyson, Paul Davenport, James Taylor-Nye, Reese Miller, Ryan Dinesh, Graham Elliott, Martin Toll, and Sean Parsons, who is a proud supporter of the Chairboys. That's Wicked Wanderers to the rest of you. If you'd like to join them and make a small monthly contribution to the pod, that would be very kind of you. You can go to patreon.com. Slash price of football. We'll be back with our next questions pod next Monday. In the meantime, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell.
0: Uh, well, as always, thank you so much for all the support and the uh, uh, and, and the groovy vibes that you send in our direction. <laughs> uh, you, you you do hold us to account, and and we actually we 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 do try to to, to pick up on that. I'll be the first to admit I, I make errors at times. Um, there's thank you to everybody at Patreon as well. Yeah, we appreciate it. It's uh, it's, it's a very generous uh, commitment. Um, and and uh, you know, in when times are tough, um, there's another way to support the show, however. Um, and if you go to your app, uh, you can give us a review and it helps us in the charts. It helps with algorithms. It helps us to have a bit of credibility um, when potential guests are looking at the show, although when they tend to look at the uh, the reviews, uh, it's normally along the lines of, um, I'd rather have this show presented by um, <laughs> by Rick Astley and, and Finley's vet. And the reason why I say that is that I'm recording this show in the office, uh, in order to try to get decent sound quality, I've had to have all of the windows and the doors closed. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and Finley has a flatulence problem oh, at present. Oh, and if anybody's ever had been in a room with a farting dog, you will know how grim that is. So um, I, I it is it's down to my professionalism that I've not managed to choke or gag over the last 45
1: minutes. Well, congratulations, Kieran. And, and well done, Finley, for staying in there as well, of course, because, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a hereditary hunter. Dog, so his nose would be quite sick. Uh, if it, there's, there's obviously something going on in the water with animals today, because uh, Smug, smudge has just dropped a piece of dry cat food in my glasses case. Uh, <laughs> which is, we really need Ali to come back. She doesn't like it when Ali's not here, so she doesn't approve of the new dry cat food she's got. So, On that uh, bombshell, we'll say goodbye to BAFTA. Oh, by the way, I I forgot to say, if you have a question you'd like to answer the show, email us at questions at com. for all those of you who stayed through the the spring watch animal gazing part of the show. (laughs) Bye, everybody.
0: Bye. (laughs)
1: I suck for football.